What's up, everybody? It's your boy Trav, aka Jiggy Rico, coming at you live for yet another episode of the Nola Reservations podcast, where we talk with dope people doing dope shit in the New Orleans entrepreneurial space, as well as how we all can rebuild our communities and support Black and minority founders across the nation. Before we get into today's episode, please be sure to follow our blog on Medium at NOLA Reservations and check out that recap of my last conversation with the amazing Adrian Mendez. Link will be in the description. All right, let's get it started, y'all. Today, we are back at Mr. Wolf Espresso in the CBD. I just learned that they got croissant sandwiches now, and they have a new mural up since our last episode, so be sure to stop by and check them out for your morning coffee and a daily dose of blackness. With me today is someone really, really special, mainly because her husband and I have literally the same exact identity, but also because she has done some truly outstanding work during her time in New Orleans. Everyone, please help me welcome the lovely and radiant Victoria Adams Phipps. Thanks so much for being here, Victoria. Well, thank you for having me, although I'm feeling like I should have brought my husband Charles. <laughs> um, I'm really, really bad with introductions, yeah. so would you mind just uh, telling the people about yourself before we get started? Yeah, no worries. Um, so I am Victoria Adams Phipps, uh, born and raised in Miami, Florida, but a long-term resident of the beautiful city of New Orleans. I have been here for... 17 years. I've lived here as long as I was in Miami. I left Miami at 17, so this very much so feels like a second home. Um, and for more than the past decade, I've worked in the space of economic development, so trying to expand jobs, invest in companies, and grow opportunities, uh, specifically for the people of New Orleans. Um, and I've had a lot of opportunities to experience a lot of highs and lows on that journey. So currently, um, I work for a national strategy firm called Fourth Economy. We work in the space of community and economic development, but on the national level. So while I'm still in New Orleans and still investing right here in this adopted home of mine, um, I'm also working with communities across the country to, mm. you know, expand opportunities for black entrepreneurs, to um, grow jobs, and to ultimately make a more equitable economy across the country. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you again for being here with us. Before we get started, you know we have to start this episode off right. Uh, in case y'all ain't know, NOLA Reservations is proudly sponsored by Exclave Spirits, so you will always catch us sipping on their famous award-winning whiskey during our show. So, allow me to raise a toast to good convo, good whiskey, and good friends. Cheers. Cheers. Ah, lovely, mm. lovely. Have you ever had X-Live before? I have. Good. But every time, I, I think I have the same reaction. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Um, so let's, let's, let's get started. Uh, why don't we first start off, can you tell us about the journey that brought you here? I know you touched on it a little mm -hmm. bit, but can you tell us where it all started? Like, 
Was it an idea? Was it a particular experience? Why don't you take us through the humble beginnings to exactly where you are now and how you got here? Yeah. So I'll go all the way, all the way, all the way back to childhood. And I actually hadn't even really made, I hadn't even really made this connection until recently. Um, So I mentioned I'm from Miami, Florida. My family's been there for a couple generations. And, um, you know, my dad is a physician by trade, but he's also an entrepreneur. Um, and also very involved in the work of community development. Um, And so as a child, my dad was always dragging me to somebody's meeting, be in the backseat of his car, and be like, oh, well, let's just swing by, you know, I need to pop into this thing. Oh, well, you know, I'm on the trustee board at the CDC, let me just, uh." and as a child, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, going to each and every (sighs) single one. Did you have to be in the room during those meetings? Oh yeah, (laughs) he would have me in there, sitting at these tables with all these adults, and I'm like, okay. What am I How much doing long? What here? am I doing? But I, I realized, though, like a lot of that conversation stuck. Like the mm-hmm. things that I tend to prioritize in my career now were the types of things I didn't realize, but I was eavesdropping on as a child. Um, my dad um, also does something that, like, my brother and I always laugh about, but like I do think it sort of planted one of these foundational seeds. The house my dad grew up in, um, Overtown in Miami, for those of you that are familiar, um, historically black neighborhood that the interstate passed Mm -hmm. through. Um, And, you know, my dad did this a bunch when we were kids. He still does it now. He'll ride us by, like, the overpass where the house used to be. Like, oh, you see right here, this used to be 14th Terrace. The house is right there. And my dad would do it again and again and again and again. And my brother and I would roll our eyes, like, oh. Because you just know, know what's coming we at know, this point. We yeah. know, we <laughs> know. Um, but those moments really just planted some, some deep seeds mm. for me. Um, the importance of community, um, the power of, of structures to take community and how hard it is to mm. rebuild it, um, the work of economic development and yeah. the work of engaging community intentionally mm. and being a part of that development. And also what happens when the community isn't at the table, right? So a whole lot of what I saw as a kid in Miami was like, things were constantly being bulldozed for the next new thing. And so for a family that had been there for generations, I would ride around with my grandmother who never drove. She never got a driver's license her whole life. It's fascinating, but she'd be in the back seat with me saying, oh, well, you know, that was the library when I was a child, or that used to be the schoolhouse, or that used to be the playground. And you see condominium bougie new restaurant nothing and, and you've so, seen how it's constantly like been changing as I've soon as they did one thing and they've now changed it to another thing that's so exactly right now it's just a completely different space in the completely different space mm. in in a space that often excludes black and brown people right and so there are these foundational experiences that i think i've had that is sort of connected with my journey here in new orleans um so i moved here uh the week of hurricane katrina it's my you know wow. <laughs> New Orleans claimed to be the week of, yeah. (laughs) As a freshman in college, it was my first week here, and um, yeah, that too was a formative experience. Obviously, you know, as a college student, I didn't experience the levels of loss that the people of New Orleans experienced at that point in time, but I was a part of the journey post the storm. And people outside of New Orleans, I was like, why would you call that a privilege? I'm like, because it was. I was like, to be here and to experience a community rebuilding itself from the ground up. Yeah, literally um, at the start of the rebuilding stage. It was huge. It was huge. And also seeing the inequities that played out in that, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that experience, experience of childhood, I think is really what made me passionate 
about being in the space of economic development and working with black business owners and wanting to invest in black communities and really seeing the needle move when we think about the, the economy and the black dollar. Um, so a lot of the work that I do today, I think, just directly connects to those like foundational experiences. Wanting to have the, the credentials and the chops to back up the work that I'm doing now, so I've gotten the, you know, the degrees and so on and so forth to have the pedigree, but a whole lot of what I bring to my work every single day, it's like being in the back seat with my dad at age seven, being a college student in New Orleans at 17. So yeah. What a story that is. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so that's led you now through all of that to Fourth Economy. Mm -hmm. And what do you do there again? Yeah, so I am the Vice President of Engagement and Impact. Come which on, VP. Is, you know, it's, it's a title, it's a thing. <laughs> um, but essentially what that means is that I work with communities large and small to advance strategies to grow their economies. Um, and increasingly, that work is done with a lens of equity. Um, increasingly, it's done with sort of targeted, intentional inclusion of black and brown communities and communities that have been underserved and underinvested in. Um, so I've been growing the team. I just hired my first person in New Orleans, hey, which is exciting. Let's go. Um, and yeah, and I've been thinking about sort of new ways our firm can evolve to reach the, the realities of the moment. We're still in this sort of weird COVID space, right? Yeah. The pandemic is, but isn't over. <laughs> um, because of the pandemic, there's a lot of resources floating around, right? And there's a lot of communities that also have great need because mm -hmm. everyone was hit um, in the last two years. And so thinking about how we show up for those places that do and don't have the resources to hire yeah. us, right? Um, that's been a lot of what I've been working on these last couple of years. And with these resources, I can imagine that they are pretty challenging to have access to if you are a black or minority founder, or somebody in that space. Can you talk about some of, you, you mentioned briefly those inequities and that, that struggle for access to resources. Can you talk a bit about how that has been reflected or shown up in your work? Oh yeah, I mean, just, just this past weekend, I am working um, on behalf of a large city that I, I won't name, large city here in the South um, that everyone would be familiar with and was there this past weekend for um, some client meetings. And, you know, a whole lot of my, my weekend was spent talking to business owners, right? Like some of whom are building high growth ventures um, some of whom are mom and pops or have a side hustle that they started out of necessity during the pandemic. And the consistent thing across all of those groups was that they, they not only lacked the resources, they didn't know what resources they had available. You know, they were completely disconnected from what we refer to as the quote unquote ecosystem, right? Um, they were completely unaware of the resources that were available to support, sustain, or scale. Uh, their business, and they were struggling. You know, not that folk weren't doing well, and I met plenty of business owners who have done well, who have hired people locally, who were on their path to, you know, scalability, but um, the structures aren't always set up to, to support us. And I think that is um, a common story in most communities mm -hmm. in the U.S. where um, we have these big success stories and we have these ecosystems that pop up, often comprised of nonprofits who are doing great work, um, but they're disconnected. And they're depending on uh, the business owners and entrepreneurs, the founders themselves, to find them yeah. versus meeting them where they're at. So there's interesting dynamics that I think are playing out in communities all over the U.S. And a lot of what my work tries to do is like highlight the gap, you know? Who could potentially fill the gap? What is in the gap? What do folks need? What are the resources that are available? And can we start to build connective tissue across? In that, in that vein, how do you, or shoot, I guess the question is, one, is there an answer? And two, if there is an answer, like how might 
these systems that are foundationally built against these people who really need access and who are really trying to gain that generational wealth or whatever it is that they're trying to attain, like what steps would need to fall into place in order for this this system or this structure or this process to, to work in our favor as opposed mm-hmm. to against us? Yeah, so there are, there are two things that I think are pretty helpful. They're sort of of the moment. One is the reality that everyone is competing for talent. Every community and every company is competing for talent and trying to find the people that they need to sustain their businesses and sustain their economies. And anyone who's been following any of the economic data about the pandemic knows that there's um, an unprecedented historic labor shortage. So in continuing to exclude people from opportunities, you are actually like cutting your own community off at the knees, right? So there are some some very real realities of like the inequities that previously only hurt people that perhaps don't look like you are now directly impacting you and directly impacting your community and your business, yeah. right? So there's, there's sort of um, an incentive to be a bit more inclusive because you have to be. So that's one thing that is sort of working in favor and is creating a little bit of opportunity. I like how you said like, yeah, well, that's a thing now, it's so a thing. you kind of have to do that. It's a thing. It's a thing. Um, so that's one thing that's working in, in favor. The other is that, as I touched on before, most entrepreneurial ecosystems are comprised of nonprofits. Um, you know, yes, there are other players. There are universities. There are investors. There are you know VC groups. There are all sorts of other entities that comprise an ecosystem. But nonprofits very often are the backbone of an ecosystem. Nonprofits are funded by philanthropy, particularly mm. the nonprofits that are of, of some size and scale. And philanthropy has also really turned their eye towards equity and inclusion and like really forcing folk to do the work. A lot of people who were declining to lean in that direction really don't have an option now because if you want to sustain this funding that you need to keep your operation going, these are the boxes, yeah. These are the boxes you got to check. Now, I like that you l- use that language because some people really are just checking the box, right? Like, it's not all intentional yeah. and deeply impactful yeah. work. Um, but those two dynamics, I think, are forcing a shift that might not have happened otherwise. So there mm. is a bit of a silver lining, if you will, um, to the pandemic. So, so in conversations around, like, how philanthropy has um, started to move in this space... I'd be interested to see how you've seen that unfold or if you've seen that unfold when you got here um, amidst uh, Katrina. Mm -hmm. I I know that that was a stage where, you know, number one, the term NOLA, which we effectively make fun of here at NOLA Reservations, came into effect so that way more people (laughs) from other places would think that this is a more attractive city to come to. Though, at the same time, I can also imagine, okay, well, if people are coming, that means, like, money is going to go into the rebuilding of the city because, like, as we've said, that just had to be what was going to happen. So mm-hmm. I'd, be, I'd be interested to kind of hear about what you've seen and how that has manifested when you first got here and maybe how that's changed up to this point. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I feel like I've seen things go in cycles, In that regard. And some of that is actually just the nature of disasters. So disasters in general, I think, do a couple things. They um, often rise to a level of prominence, right? So there's a level of awareness of a disaster that exists outside of the area that was impacted, right? Um, Obviously, we saw that with Katrina. We've seen that with other natural disasters that have played out since then. Um, But we also saw it with the pandemic. 
Now it was different because everyone was impacted, right? But there's a level of awareness that, that, that rose up because of it. With that awareness comes this influx of resources. And that's both in terms of individuals opening their pocketbooks, um, <laughs> but also philanthropy rushing yeah. in, right? Um, and so post-Katrina, you saw this influx of capital, right? There were all sorts of folks that wanted to be a part of, quote unquote, rebuilding New Orleans. Yep. Um, and there were things that were really great about that. And there were things that were really challenging about that and things that I would argue were even inappropriate. And like, you know, I don't work directly in philanthropy, but my friends that do often talk about the, the power dynamic that exists with philanthropy, right? Like when someone is coming in and writing a big check, in many ways they are... Like entitled to somehow this is being shaped because it's like, oh, well, if you want my money, then you also want my say-so on how this you is You will go. orient yourself in this, this way, yeah, right? Yeah. So he who has the gold makes the rules, and I think that plays out, right? And so when I, when I think about the cycles, I think you saw some of that post-Katrina, and you see some of it now. I do think, you know, kudos to my peers in, in philanthropy, I do think there's more of an awareness of that, right? The sort of invisible hand of control that philanthropy possesses and sort of the pandemic saw philanthropy sort of saying like, here's the money, do what you want with it, right? Mm -hmm, so that was mm -hmm. sort of a, a bit of an experiment that played out in a wide scale. Um, but you know, the proliferation of resources immediately following a disaster is also immediately followed by an absence of resources post-Katrina was like there were all these nonprofits that popped up, not even just specific to the entrepreneurial ecosystem, just in general. Because it's prime time now. Prime time, mm -hmm. right? And because city services were decimated, we have an education system that was completely remodeled. Yep. Some would argue not for the better, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today. <laughs> nonprofits were often the ones that were standing in these gaps, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, and you had this moment where you looked around and I was like, well, God, Damn, everybody got a nonprofit, everybody working at a nonprofit, everybody got a grant, like what is going on? And it wasn't sustainable. And so then you saw a contraction, mm. you saw competition mm. amongst nonprofits where nonprofits really should be collaborative entities, Absolutely. right? We should be thinking about how we're working together to close gaps and solve oh, problems. And that's terrible because it really turns into like every man for themselves. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I want my business to do well. And then that's it right. turns into an arms race of, if it has to come at the expense of your business, then, hey, maybe you can work for me instead. That's right. And you have instances where, okay, we have had enough funding to sustain an organization that's of this size, let's say 20 people or so. Well, now I have to fight tooth and nail with my peers mm. in local nonprofits. And when you were saying um, it's not sustainable, it. were you also saying, like, because the money runs out? Like, because yeah. there's eventually, yeah. like, they're just going to be like, all right, I gave you this much, and I ain't giving y'all no more. That's like, right. And, um, you know, I will say, specific to New Orleans, there have been um, some national philanthropies that have been with the city for the long haul. They continue to invest, they continue to double down on those investments and bring their peers to the table with them. So I don't want it to seem as though there aren't folks that are sort of making that long-term commitment to a place and to an initiative. Um, but you do see folks who sort of put the drop in the bucket and they're like, all right, y'all figure it out. And I think, you know, that's what we saw post-Katrina. That's what other communities have seen post their individual natural disasters. That's what Puerto Rico saw post-Maria, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, my theory is that this is what we're about to see post-COVID. We had had this influx of resources, and at this point, it's not just specific to any one city, it's nationwide, right? And then at some point, the scale's back. 
The federal government starts doing a little bit more. Now we're seeing at a national level, inflation's going up. We're seeing, oh, the Fed wants to increase those interest rates. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Stop spending Gas so much prices. money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there, there's sort of these cycles that yeah. you see playing out, and you have to just, you know, telescope down the path and say, okay, well, like, where is this headed? What yeah. might it mean? It means, like, a constriction. And, like, what's going to constrict? Is it the number of people who are providing good service in your community? Is it the number of businesses, small mm. businesses in particular, who won't be able to sustain operations? Yeah. Is it that's critical service in your community, right? And so we have to sort of start to read the tea leaves that aren't where we are today, but maybe two or three steps down the board and say, all right, like, how do we get there? How do we start to solve those challenges and deal with them before they hit? Um, One of the things that I think has been frustrating for me in my career is like, Y'all don't see these cycles playing out? This, We've literally we didn't, done did this we not? Did we not learn the lessons? Yeah. Did we not see what happened when we did this before? And, yeah, and you don't learn know the lesson history. to make the change? But we don't know our history, yeah. right? And like, you know, I, as someone who is not born and raised in New Orleans but loves it dearly, I, I understand the, the conversation about transplants, right? Like as someone that like has been here for a long time but like would never call themselves a New Orleanian because I feel like that's a birthright, right? Mm-hmm. To say you were from New Orleans, that is a birthright. That is a privilege. You know, I get the concern about people also flexing into a place. And I think for both of us sitting here, right, not being from a place but wanting to positively impact a place, like that dynamic of it is interesting as well. The thing about that, you know, as far as the notion of not knowing your history, most of the people who are aspiring entrepreneurs that do come to the city don't know it to that extent like they mm-hmm. don't they don't know where the city has gone or where it's going they just want to be a part of what's happening whatever well, but is what happening. You, it's, it's what you said they don't know their history mm-hmm. right and i think one of the things at least for for myself and i think you're you're of the same vein is like you have to understand the place that you're at and you have to respect the place that you're at right like you have to not just know like the macro history oh the city was founded in 17 <laughs> like not that you have to understand like the realities of these people, the neighborhoods, the businesses that are and that work. You have to understand the trends that have played out if you really want to call yourself, quote unquote, a part of a community, and you really want to call yourself someone that's trying to positively impact Right, you gotta give more than you're gonna take to it. Give more know? that you're gonna, in, in respect. I think respect is really above foundational all else, yeah. above all else. I'm really curious to hear um, what kind of comparisons you have seen, you know, from New Orleans to some of these other communities? Mm-hmm. Do you think that the problems are more, more or less the same across the board with um, other areas that you do your work in? Or would you say that, you know, while the problems may be, may be relatively mm-hmm. the same, that they're drawn from different, um, different causes? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. It's something I think about a lot. Um, there are definitely some things that are unique to this place, for sure. Yeah. But there's a whole lot that isn't. But we talk about them as though they're just unique to this place, which I think is, is interesting. Yeah. Um, and in working at the sort of national level now and you know, being able to interact with a lot of different types of communities, I'll be honest, I often find myself struck by how similar things are, even things that I thought were super unique to New Orleans and, you know, the culture that we have here and the history that we've had here. Um, And it's not always the case, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, one of my clients, yet again, another major city, won't name it, but this one in the Northeast, um, you know, they got a school system that just can't get right. 
that just can't get right. <laughs> and now it's not the same dynamic that we have here with, you know, proliferation of charter schools and, you know, kids not being able to go to go to schools in their own neighborhoods, but there are some shades of the exact same stuff playing out in that community. And it's like, okay, well, some of this stuff is not unique to us. Um, and at some point we have to be willing to look up and like seek out our peers, right? Like who are our sister cities? Who are the people who are grappling with the same issues or have grappled and have succeeded in overcoming those issues and starting to learn from those lessons as well? I think too often as people and as communities, like we're constantly trying to, to, to go our own way, yeah. reinvent the wheel, hack it ourselves. And it's like, it doesn't have to be this hard all yeah. the time. Now look, I'm not saying there are silver bullet solutions for everything. There aren't for most Definitely things. Not. Um, but I do think sometimes we miss the opportunity to, to learn from others. Um, and so whether it's education, whether it's uh, growing, seeding, and scaling black-owned businesses, whether it is environmental issues, whether it's the simple act of like retaining and expanding the businesses that we have, there's more we could be doing because yeah. we're, we're very similar yeah. to other places, more so than I think we get credit for. Absolutely. I, I feel like we could we could talk about this all day. All night. Um, and you got me drinking this whiskey, so you know. <laughs> so really all night. <laughs> really all night. Um, though I, I do want to also um, give the people an opportunity to just learn more about you. I mean, sure. we are talking about how we can rebuild our cities. I mean, you're a very big part of that. And um, I'm really curious to hear about what some of the highs and some of the lows of this entire journey has been. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, there are a number of like really awesome highs. I think my favorite highs are seeing the companies that you worked with and they were like teeny tiny itty bitty, like you just had a, a teeny idea. Didn't even have a company yet, just an idea. Seeing those founders go on their journeys and then seeing their products on a shelf. And like the big moments for me have been when I've seen that product on a shelf in a place that is other than New Orleans, right? Like there was a moment when I was still at the Idea Village, um, there was a company we had worked with in its early days, and I was at home with my mom. We were grocery shopping in Publix, as one does <laughs> when you're home with your parents. And um, we saw their product on the shelf. And my mom was like, oh, what's this? This is cool. Hey, I know them. That's and I was like, name. oh my god. Um, and so you have those moments of recognizing, like, it's working. Like, impact is being had. This whole thing like, that we're doing is producing it's an working. outcome. Yeah. So you have those moments of sort of tangible impact. But I also, I will say some of the work that I did in the midst of the pandemic was probably the most gratifying for me. Mm. So in my last year at the New Orleans Business Alliance, that was the first year of the mm -hmm. pandemic, which mm -hmm. I'm still sitting in, goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, no one really knew how to respond to the moment, right? Yeah. Um, you sort of heard this thing was happening in China, you heard it was spreading, didn't really know what it was gonna mean for us, and then bam, it's here and everyone's at home, right? And so at that point in time, we had this killer C-suite team that I was honored to have been a part of. We all had a call. It was, let's see, we all went, lockdown started on the Wednesday, so this was Thursday night, so the one night into the lockdown. All of us are like, what do you think it means? Mm -hmm. I remember we were all, drinking. It's late, nine or 10 o'clock at night. What are we going to do? Um, and someone was like, well, you know what? We don't know what's ahead of us. Let's start some sort of fund. I'm like, all right, cool. Who are we going to impact? 
well, let's start thinking about who might be left out of the safety net, right? We know the government, whether local, state, or federal, they're gonna do something, right? Because yeah. we've seen what's happened in other places. Who might be left out of the safety net? Um, and we landed on gig workers. We recognize that we are over-indexed in this city with yep. people who don't participate in traditional working structures, yep. whether they are rideshare drivers or musicians or dancers or people who are just out here hustling. Um, you got a lot of people that fall in the bucket of gig work who don't have some sort of job paying them regularly who can go and get unemployment. So that night, late night, over drinks, decided um, we were going to start the Gig Economy Relief Fund. So that was Thursday late at night. Worked literally around the clock. Pulled like my first set of all-nighters that I had pulled since college, probably. Designed the program, built the website, and we're giving out money by Monday of the following week. Um, and so, you know, we put in $100,000 of our own funds. Um, that was immediately matched. Mrs. Gail Benson matched that. Um, and then it was, you know, six weeks of crazy fundraising. So when it was all said and done, we had raised $1.5 million and issued it all. In six in weeks. direct grants. Wow. Um, so yeah, so that, that was a cool experience. It felt amazing. It also felt exhausting if I'm keeping <laughs> the buck. Um, but it's cool because I run into people today who I don't know them, but they know me. You're the only person that gave me anything. Wow. In 2020. Wow. And changed their lives forever, I can imagine. I was able to keep my lights on. I was able to feed my child. I was able to stay in my apartment because that was before the eviction moratoriums, yeah. right? Um, and so, like, the grants weren't huge. They were $500 grants, right? But they made a difference. And, you know, we, were able, we got some follow-on investments right when we were scaling down the fund. And it felt good to be able to say, you know what? You can give them to us if you want to, but why don't you give them to some organizations who are going to continue? So we straight up were like, take the check. We're not taking an administration fee off the top, nothing. Like Mackinac, you yep, got it. Jazz got and it. Heritage, you got it. French Quarter Festival, you got it. But like, pass it forward. Like the intent mm. behind these funds is to get this money into the hands of people that need it. Um, so we knew festival season wasn't happening. Jazz Fest, French Quarter Fest, y'all got it. Um, so those moments, I think, felt, felt really, really good. You asked about the highs and the lows. I think the, the lows are harder to put my finger on because I feel like they're just a consistent drumbeat in the background. For me, the lows are like, it's the impact that you can't have, right? It's the, it's the, the people you can't reach. Mm, the people, there there but, are going to be those well, people. Well, let me be real. It's the people that also are frustrated with you because you can't reach them, mm. right? And so in some of my earlier days in the ecosystem, you know, particularly when I was working in the, the high growth space, working with high growth founders, um, there were a whole lot of folk that got tired of me telling them no. A whole lot of folk who, you know, you have a great lifestyle business, but it's not gonna scale. And you just have to like, be real about it. Like this is, this is You have to be is. real about it. Yeah. But let me, like as the person on the, on delivering the side, those messages, yeah. man, man, it sucks. Devastating. Man, it sucks. And you see those people, it might be a decade later, and they still don't want to talk. <laughs> I don't want to hear nothing she got to say. Um, and so those, those are the low points for me. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because I'm a people pleaser. Maybe it's because, you know, I like being nice and likable. <laughs> but, like... What's your sign? It's hard. I'm a Libra. <laughs> <laughs> there that is. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, those moments are hard. 
Um, I also think you have those moments as well, just being real about it when you know you didn't do your best, right? Mm. Maybe you weren't as intentional as you could have been. Like, maybe you, like, you know, cut some corners and, like, all right, this is the best we could do. And you look back on those moments and are like, shoot, like, did I really do right by the people? You know, and in the nonprofit industry, and, and like, most folk who have been in the nonprofit industry for a long time will tell you this, you get burnt out. Even when it's something that you are passionate about and you, you know, would work around around the clock, fight tooth and nail for, you have those moments of, like, I ain't got it to give. Um, and that's just being human, right? Yeah. I've certainly had those. Most of my, my you know, close girls who work, work in similar spaces, they have similar moments. And you got to give yourself a little bit of grace. You in those literally moments. read my mind. And I was just going to say, like, it's, it's, that's crucial. Mm-hmm. Because I also think that, as I've seen, you know, through uh, the pandemic, Hurricane Zeta, Hurricane Ida, all of those were instances in which it, it was about giving like it was it was about supporting it was about everybody having like you have to come together for the benefit of everybody and i've seen like some of these at a very smaller scale these things that you talk about like funds being started in the instagram pages about here are resources that you Mm -hmm. can access because nobody knows nobody knows where to go or how to go and particularly when you need and even when you do it's like how do I know I'm getting to everybody? How do I know that, you know, every single community is, 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 has a touch point, you know? Mm-hmm. So I can, I can imagine that being, being really difficult. Through all of that, you know, what are some things that you feel that you've learned? What are some things that you've, like, carried that, that you can now implement into the work that you're doing now? I mean, I'm sure that there were a lot of things that, you know, you're like, dang, I could have done this better. But truly within, within the work, within even if it's a streamlined process or a different way to think about or go about something, like what are, what are some of those lessons that you've carried? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one, I would say your team matters. And I think that's true for people who are trying to do impact-oriented work, mission-oriented work, but yeah. also for entrepreneurs, um, particularly in those early days when you're trying to force someone to believe in something that they've never seen before. And so when I look back on some of the, the hires and fires, that I've made in the past, um, I never regretted hiring the person who was passionate, but maybe lacked the experience. I almost always regretted hiring the person that had all the experience in the world, but lacked the passion. So hire the people that are passionate. Hard stop. Um, The other lesson that I would share is like rest matters too. So here's a low point, actually, now that I think about it. a lot of folks in this community got to know me because I was a part of the, the scale of New Orleans Entrepreneur Week. Um, people like to give me full credit for it. I'm not going to take full credit for it. I was a part of the scale. Um, when Noe was really starting to you know, get big, it went from a, you know, a gathering of a couple hundred folks to thousands of people were starting to come to this thing annually, I got sick. I got sick. Mm, I knew something was wrong, let's say six COVID? weeks before. No, 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 no. This is years ago. This, oh, this is like, this is 2012. Maybe. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And <laughs> I remember being like, God, I know something's not right, but like, I'm going to just keep pushing. Mardi Gras came, couldn't make it to any parades. I was sick as a dog. Something's not right, not feeling good. I'm going to keep pushing. Ended up in the ER two weeks before Entrepreneur Week. 
And they were like, yeah, sis, you got to have surgery. <gasps> oh, no. On what? Or sorry. No, you're totally fine. I, I mean, you know, I don't think your, your show has to be a HIPAA-compliant place. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to have my gallbladder removed. Wow. And I was like, oh, but can it wait until after Noe? They're like, mm-hmm. And the people were like, what? <laughs> and I was like, I got all this work, and I got all these people dependent on me, and if I don't X, Y, and Z, it's not going to get done, right? And you know my crazy ass went all the way through Noe needing to have surgery? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You actually yeah, yeah, moved yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that. I did that. I did that. I mean, you a thug. I'll give you I that. I mean, thank you. <laughs> the Dade County Emmy is proud to hear it. Um, but yeah, I did that. Um, and on the one hand, I look back and I'm like, you did great work. So there's, there's a moment of sort of kudos, I guess. But there's also a moment of like, it ain't never worth all that. It's not. And so like prioritizing your health, getting your rest, um, it's, ne- it's never worth compromising things that are like foundational to your life. And so I think too often, um, particularly as we're thinking about the entrepreneurial journey, right? It's all about the hustle, right? We out here grinding, we team no sleep. Why we team no sleep? Who's productive with no sleep? <laughs> you know, and so just we, we, from a cultural perspective, we just have to change, change the dialogue. Say, like yeah. rest and caring for yourself is actually a part of the success quotient, right? Yep. Like it's a part of what we should all be thinking about. Like how are you getting your rest? Mm. Like that's what's actually going to make you successful. Because like if you're not good to yourself, you can't be good to anybody else. Ooh. Man, I needed to hear that. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening to this can also relate. Um, so I'm going to switch gears a little okay. bit. Um, bringing it back to a comment that you made earlier as far as looking at where, looking through a telescope to say, where is all of this going? Um, in the same lens, pun slightly intended, um, where do you see your career going? Where do you see the work Ooh. that you're doing um, creating that impact? And Or in addition to where you see it going, you know, how do you feel that you're going to get there? What would you like to see coming out of all of these all of these things that you're producing and manifesting? Yeah, I love this question because it's forcing me to think as well. Um, so I obviously can't give an exact destination, right? I don't know exactly about the where journey it's headed, but I know how I want it to feel. I know mm-hmm. the type of impact I want to create. Um, at the end of the day, when I, you know, have the the moment of looking back on everything behind me. Um, I want to know that I created a positive economic impact for black and brown people. Hard stop. I want to have been able to move the needle in a significant way that has put more money in the hands of black and brown people, that has created more jobs, and not just jobs, but good jobs, upwardly mobile, you can sustain a family, build a life, buy a house type jobs. Yeah. For Great equity, generational people. wealth. Generational wealth. Um, that, that's, that's the journey I'm on. And I think uh, when I look back on my career path and the way I see my career path playing out in front of me, I think it's not just about building things that will create those levels of investment, um, but it's also about being a conduit for lesson sharing And so, you know, when I think about my strengths, like, I'm a strategic thinker, I'm great at raising money, but, like, I'm great at speaking Mm. about things. Um, I'm great at being the person who has to stand in front of the microphone and do the thing. And oftentimes, 
It's about sharing the lessons. What was the playbook? How did someone do it? How could you do it? What are the lessons you should take back to your community? I don't have to be the one to run the play, but I can help you do it. And so what form and fashion that takes on, we'll see. I haven't been disappointed so far. <laughs> um, but that's the impact I'd like to have when it's all said and done. What a beautiful legacy to leave behind. I'm excited to see where that's, Me too. Where that's going. <laughs> Hopefully I'll still be around to see it all manifest. Um, so we're, we're nearing the end of this incredible conversation, so I just have a couple of final questions for you. Um, what are some final nuggets of wisdom that you have to offer for aspiring entrepreneurs like myself? Mm. Um, some, what are some of the most valuable takeaways from your journey that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, so this is one. I'm actually stealing it from a girlfriend who said it to me. She said, sharpen the points of your star. Mm. And when she said it, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard that one before. What you're talking about. Um, and she, basically, she broke it down like this. Very often, we talk about wanting to be well-rounded. And I think that's true for people climbing you know, their, their career paths, like career ladders, right? Um, but it's certainly true for entrepreneurs, right? Particularly when you are that founder who has just started something, doesn't really know which way is up, you're trying to hack away at it, um, and feeling like I have to wear all of the hats, right? And sometimes we are in those instances and we need to wear all of the hats. Um, but sharpen the points of your star essentially means that you shouldn't be striving to have the same level of expertise and excellence across all of these various spheres that are required for your journey. Focus on the things that you're uniquely good at. If you're incredible at raising money, but you actually are terrible at managing the finances, <laughs> find you someone who's star is, is sharper on that finance thing, right? And make them a part of your journey. The things you're going to be celebrated for, the things that will create impact, the things that will be memorable, um, and that ultimately will sustain your success are those points. It's not these, these divots that we're trying to quote unquote build up so we can be well-rounded. Mm -hmm. I'm not really trying to be round. I'm trying to be sharp. Mm, wow. I know that we said earlier, you know, about how people don't know their history when they come mm -hmm. to different cities, particularly New Orleans, as we've named. And so this is my method, you know, having these conversations and and sharing with everybody and doing the blog on Medium to encourage and foster further conversation to gain even more insight and mm -hmm. perspective. So how, how might you suggest that other founders um, or other transplants, other people who are just migrating to a new city, mm -hmm. how might they go about learning their history? How Man. might they go about uh, continuing to give more than what they take? Well, on the first point, read. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's shocking to me. The more you know. How, how <laughs> many people just don't do, like, basic reading, yep. you know? Take a look. And, I mean, for, <laughs> like, for real, though, you know? And, and certainly with a city like New Orleans, there's so much good literature out there about the history of this place. So I'm not saying you've got to be ready to have a PhD-level understanding of the city of New Orleans and be ready to write your dissertation tomorrow. I'm not saying that, but, like, Read a little something. Know about the place that you live and the people that live in it and yeah. who have lived here for generations, right? And that's true of every place. One of the things that I do in my current work when I'm sort of dropping into these communities for a very limited amount of time, often, you know, six months, maybe less, the first thing I do is figure out what I can get my hands on to learn about it. 
I'm going to Google, I'm going to go on Amazon Research. and see, you know, who's written some, you know, work of nonfiction about that place talking about the history because I want to understand it. And it's never going to be perfect. But in the places where you realize you're lacking perspective, okay, talk to people, mm. right? Like one of the most beautiful things about this place that we call home is like the ability to talk to people. Like that just doesn't exist in yeah. other places. One of the things yeah. that I love about New Orleans. So like I guarantee you there is somebody on your block right now today who has been there for decades. Go and talk to them. My husband and I, we live in Gentilly. Before we moved into our house, we walked the block. I want to talk to folk. How yeah. long have you been here? What do you know about the neighborhood? Yeah. Who lived in this house that we were about to buy? Like, you know, ask folk. And you build relationships in that way. You get perspective on the past, but guess what? You also get friends. You get community. You build yeah, relationship people with people who want to look, look out, for, out you. for you. You know? And so um, <clears throat> read, talk to people, and embrace the sense of community. You know? Like, this is not just some fun, cute backdrop where we get to go out and have drinks and Mardi Gras happens once a year and this and that. Be a part of, of this community in a real way and wherever you are. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm, I'm going to internalize that for myself. I mean, shoot, if I had asked a little bit more around my block before, <laughs> <laughs> before I ended up moving uptown, I may not, you know, have been in a couple of different situations. But hey, you know, we live and we learn. And lastly, I'm really curious about who would be good to continue this conversation with. Who might, who might I bring onto the show to continue to provide this really valuable insight as I'm, you know, on this journey of unfiltered truth, of self-discovery, and of cultural awareness in New mm -hmm. Orleans? Yeah, well, um, through the lens of entrepreneurship, I moderated a, a panel actually last week with three dope founders, um, all of whom I think you should connect with. Um, so one is Diego Pinzon with Don Audio, um, young dude who is a musician in his own right, but is building a very compelling tech-enabled um, um, audio company locally. Um, Tony Zanders with Skilltype who is based in Baton Rouge and is um, building an incredible company, but also is trying to embrace the concept of the super region, which mm. I respect him so much for, but brother, I move into Baton Rouge. <laughs> um, and Arielle Brown with Bees Bayou. She makes incredible um, products for the skin and scalp. Um, so I'd recommend those three. Gotcha. And then on the you know nonprofit economic development side of things, you got to talk to Norman Barnum at New Orleans Business Alliance. Okay, he's a native New Orleanian, but went away and built his career in Philadelphia for twenty years, and has come back home. He has very unique perspective. Um, and Sabrina Short with Nolivate Black slash Black Technola the sis is putting it on for this city, Places. creating jobs and bringing resources to our community. So. That's my list. Thank you. I think that's all that I got for you today, uh, Victoria. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you here for having on me. Nola Reservations. Uh, and as always, we got to give love and a big, big shout out to Exclave Spirits for sponsoring our uh, beverage of choice for the evening, as well as always just uh, coming through to make this happen and to make it a reality. Be sure to check out our blog following this episode so that way you can be a part of the conversation and keep all of uh, these great thoughts and great ideas flowing. And we're going to see y'all next time. Love, peace, 